You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Well, welcome to Gospel Community Church. Thanks for your flexibility. We would obviously love to be at the lake today, uh, but here we are. Thanks also, parents, uh, for your uh, adaptability. I know it's nice to have kids ministry, but for the last minute change, uh, we're having elementary kids here with us today, which will be fine. Try to make this a little bit quicker so we can get to baptisms. Hopefully they got lots of pages to color. Uh, and then like Chris said, if you have toddlers or preschoolers, there's a room down the hall back there that you can drop those kids off and then a family room for any younger kids that need attention during the service. Uh, yeah, like Chris said, GC groups are starting this week. I would uh, agree with him. Highly recommend joining one of those. It's, uh, we're not a very big church, but sitting in a room like this, it can feel uh, like a lot of people. And so GC groups are a place that make a, a big church or a bigger church feel like a small church where you can get to know people. And story after story of people who got plugged into the church body uh, and grew in relationship with one another and in the relationship with Christ through our GC groups. And so they, those are kicking off this week. Uh, from Sunday through Wednesday, like Chris said, if you have any questions about those, connect table, me, Chris, someone who looks like they know something, ask them, and hopefully we'll see if they know anything. So um, if you've been in Oregon for the last few years, you've been accustomed to the smoke-filled skies in August and September. I read something the other day that over the last 10 years, uh, our state has averaged around 1,000 forest fires a year, which is pretty crazy. Um, some of those obviously are really small and they're a long ways away from any civilized or populated areas. And then it seems like every year there's a few large ones as well that uh, fill our skies with smoke that are near uh, populated areas that cause evacuations and those kinds of things. So we're well aware that forest fires can take lives, destroy towns, and be really destructive to the forests that surround our area. And so they're often viewed negatively, and this is obviously understandable. Uh, but there's a positive side to forest fires as well, and especially ones that are a long ways away from populated areas, uh, and especially ones that are sometimes lit on purpose uh, and are controlled. Uh, in many cases, forest fires are actually good and sometimes necessary for the health of a forest. As a naturally occurring event, they can bring life and flourishing to a lot of ecosystems that we have in our world. So for example, over the years, dead and decaying plant and animal matter can stack up on the forest floor. And this layer of dead organic material can prevent essential moisture and nutrients from getting into the soil. Uh, and so when fires come through, it clears away that dead and decaying organic matter and allows moisture and nutrients to get into the soil, providing a kind of a blank slate for plant and animal life to grow and thrive in. There's a lot of types of pine trees that their reproduction actually requires fire in order for the trees to reproduce. Their seeds are kept in pine cones that are covered in pitch, and so those have to be melted in order for the seeds to be planted and trees to grow. There's a caterpillar, the Carner Blue Butterfly Caterpillar, which is endangered, and it's interesting. I don't necessarily care about this caterpillar, but they have one food source, only one. It's the wild lupine, and wild lupine requires fire to maintain an ecosystem balance in which it can thrive. And so if there's no fire, there's no wild lupine, and without wild lupine, we have no Carner Blue Butterfly Caterpillar, and then therefore no Carner Blue Butterflies. So I don't even know what it looks like, but fun fact. Fires wipe out invasive species and diseases that are foreign to an ecosystem. They provide new habitat for animals to move into once the fire is out. 
And when the fire is planned and controlled, it can actually prevent larger wildfires from breaking out because it eliminates the dry fuel on the forest floor. Forest fires cause a lot of death and destruction, but they also bring about new life and health to an ecosystem. And in a lot of ways, forest fires are kind of a helpful picture for us when considering Christian baptism. Baptism symbolically marks the death of our old self, of our old lives, and the birth of a new life, a new creation. But in order for this new creation to exist, it has to first go through the waters of death. And so I'm going to unpack kind of what I mean by this this morning as we look at the baptism of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Matthew, chapter 3. Look at a couple verses here about Jesus' baptism. We'll read into 4 as well later, but we'll start with Matthew, chapter 3. I'll read this and then pray, and we'll, we'll dive in. Verses 16 and 17 in Matthew, chapter 3, say this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for new life and new creation. We thank you that for the, the symbol of baptism and this, uh, this mark that uh, shows to the world and reminds us of our death to our old self and our resurrection to new life. And that only comes through union with you, Jesus Jesus, when you went to the, the cross, you took our sin with you, you buried it in the grave, and when you rose again, you left it there. And so we don't have to suffer or experience the shame or guilt or death that our sin deserves and brings with it when we're united to you. So God, I pray that this morning, as we just consider baptism as a whole and have baptisms later, that you would remind and reveal to each and every one of us the gift of grace that is the salvation you provide through Christ, that we would celebrate with those being baptized today, that you would remind those of us who have been baptized of the new life we have in Christ, and that you would encourage, convict, and, and, and show those who have yet to be baptized uh, what it might look like to follow you um, and take that, that step of faith. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us from your word, that the gospel would be proclaimed loud and clear through our time together this morning, uh, and that we would bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Jesus' baptism is, is, is a significant moment in each of the four gospel accounts. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they each record Jesus' baptism. And it's significant for a variety of reasons, some that we're not going to get to today. So what I want to bring to our attention this morning is how Jesus' baptism marks the initiation of a new creation. And we see that because of how his baptism and then the temptation of Jesus that follows in chapter 4 mirror the creation of the world in Genesis 1 and then the temptation and sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And so, for example, in Genesis 1, we see God's spirit hovering over the dark chaos waters that were there before God creates uh, life and, and the earth and the, the skies and those kinds of things. It says God's spirit is hovering over the dark depths of water. And in Matthew 3, the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. In the Genesis account, that word for hovering is like fluttering, and it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to birds that are hovering over their nest. So we have the Spirit hovering like a bird over the waters in creation, and the Spirit descending like the dove over Jesus at his baptism. Also in Genesis 1, God splits the waters to create land, and at Jesus' baptism, the heavens are split open, and Jesus is there in the midst. In Genesis, God creates with his word. He speaks and things exist. He says, let there be light and there is light. 
And here at Jesus' baptism, God speaks and declares Jesus as his beloved son. Both the new Israel and the new Adam, a new humanity, and the Messiah, the promised one who is to come and restore all things. So in Genesis 1, God creates the world by his word, through his spirit, by splitting the waters and creating a place for humans to live and flourish. And at Jesus' baptism, God establishes a new creation by declaring with his word and through his spirit and by splitting the waters and establishing a place for humans to live and flourish. But this time, that place is not a garden, but a person, the person of Jesus. Now, this new creation is necessary because something went terribly wrong with the first one. God created this, this incredible place, the Garden of Eden, uh, full of life, and he created Adam and Eve to, Eve to live in it. They would live in God's presence with full access to eternal and abundant life. All they had to do was submit to God as the ultimate authority, a position that is rightfully his as the creator of all things. Now, this is where our bad guy enters the story. A tempter in the form of a serpent approaches Adam and Eve with the goal of usurping God's authority through the rebellion of his creation. Satan tempts Adam and Eve in three ways. He tempts them first to doubt God's provision and love for them. He convinces them that God is holding something back from them, that if they eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, they will be like God. God has not provided everything they need. There is still more. God is withholding something good from them, and so therefore he can't be trusted to provide for them. Secondly, he tempts them to doubt God's words. He does this by twisting God's words. The first thing the serpent says to Adam and Eve is, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Which is not at all what God said. God said not to eat from one tree in the garden, but from the beginning, Satan is planting seeds of doubt and distrust in the minds of Adam and Eve. And then lastly, he tempts them to doubt God's authority. Ultimately, the rejection of God's command is a rejection of God himself and a decision not to worship him, but to worship someone or something else. It's a, it's, a, it's a statement that God does not know what is right and wrong. He doesn't know what is good and bad for me. I know that. I'm the authority of my life, and so I will worship and bow down to my own needs and desires and not what God says I need and desire. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the, knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it is much more than simply breaking God's rules. It is an outright rejection of God, a conscious and active decision. Because God will not provide, cannot be trusted, and should not be worshipped, we don't need him. Now, this decision to reject the creator and his authority sends creation into a downward spiral. From this point on, we see murder, divorce, slavery, lying, greed, and selfishness take over humanity. The brokenness we see and experience in our world today is because creation has been affected and marred by sin, by our rejection of God. Left on our own and to our own devices, humans make a mess of everything we touch. Each and every one of us have made the same conscious and active decision that Adam and Eve made to reject God and his authority and decide for ourselves what is right and wrong and good and bad. We are born doubting God's love and provision, doubting God's word and trustworthiness, and doubting his authority and worthiness of our worship. I recently became a volunteer chaplain for the Lane County Sheriff's Office, which has been a lot of fun. So I've been getting to go on a lot of ride-alongs with the deputies that work in our county. And over the course of the, the, my time riding with these deputies, I try to talk to them about the gospel and hear their stories. And I try to get into those conversations by asking worldview questions. So everyone has a worldview, and our worldview are, is shaped by how we answer questions like, where did we come from? 
What is the purpose of everything? What is the point of our life? What is wrong with the world? What's the problem? Everyone agrees there's a problem. And then what is the solution to that problem? Where do we come from? What is our purpose? What is wrong with us? And what is the solution to that thing? And the easiest one of these questions to ask a law enforcement officer is what is wrong with the world, right? Because they deal with what is wrong with the world on a daily basis. They're coming face to face with the problems of our society day in and day out. And so I'll try to ask the questions along the lines of what is the common theme that you see in the people that you're interacting with on a daily basis? Or you see a lot of brokenness and mess what do you think is the cause of that? Or what is the underlying thread between all of the brokenness that you experience? And I get a variety of answers to these questions. Probably the most popular one is mental health issues. Sometimes the answer to these questions is drugs or cycles of generational crime. Maybe it's someone's upbringing or childhood trauma. We hear other answers in our world to this question of what is the problem. It could be uh, climate change is the problem. Uh, it could be social injustice, a lack of education, the political left or the political right. But none of these answers ever gets to the root of our problem. It never gets to the heart. And I believe that the Christian worldview given to us in the Bible, it provides the only satisfactory answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? Uh, in the early 1900s, the London Times posed a question to a number of prominent authors. And the question they posed is that very question, what is wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton, a well-known author at the time, responded to this question with a one-sentence essay. And the essay read, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. You see, I am what is wrong with the world. And so are you. Our individual and collective rejection of God, what the Bible calls sin, is what is wrong with our world. And so if we are a problem, if we are the problem, then we need a solution. And not just a tack on solution, not just 10 tips or tricks to live a better life or five steps for being a good person. Our sin reaches into our, the core of who we are. We often uh, treat solutions to sin like pin the tail on the donkey. We hope that if we just stick enough things on us, eventually one of them will hit the right spot and then that will solve our problem. But what we really need is not to be a donkey, to be a horse, okay? I realize now how dumb this illustration is. But the point I'm trying to make is that we try to tack on solutions to us when in reality we need to be remade into something new. We need to be regenerated. We need to be recreated. We need to be transformed. The problem is not on the outside of us. The problem is within us. And so we need change from the inside out. Just as we believe that the Bible provides the only satisfactory answer to the question is what is wrong with the world, we also believe that the Bible provides the only satisfactory answer to the question, what is the solution? And this is where Jesus comes in. And Jesus' baptism marks the initiation of this new creation, this regeneration, this transfer, transformation that we need because of our sin. Immediately after Jesus' baptism, he's tempted by the same serpent that Adam and Eve were tempted by in the garden. So if you look at Matthew chapter 4, just below what we read, where verses 1 through 3 say this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. See, Satan tempts Jesus with the same three temptations that Adam and Eve got. He's first tempted to doubt God's love and provision, to take matters into his own hands and turn stones into bread to feed him after fasting for so long. Then he twists God's words. You can look down a little bit further in the second temptation. He tempts Jesus to doubt God's trustworthiness. 
Satan even quotes scripture out of context, essentially putting words in God's mouth in an attempt to plant seeds of distrust in the same way that he did with Adam and Eve. And lastly, he tempts Jesus to reject God's authority. He shows them all the kingdoms of the world, and if Jesus would just bow down and worship Satan, they would all be his. Reject God and worship someone or something else. It's the same three temptations Adam and Eve got and failed. It's the same three temptations you and I get and fail. But Jesus doesn't fail. He resists each one, doubles down on his commitment to God by quoting scripture after scripture, showing trust in God's provision, trust in God's word, and trust in God's authority. Adam and Eve were put in a garden with everything they could ever need, but they failed because they wanted more. And Jesus is driven into the desert and the wilderness, is without food for 40 days, and succeeds because he realizes he already has everything he needs. Jesus' sinlessness continues throughout his life, doing what none of us ever could by living a life in perfect submission to God and his authority. He never sinned, never contributed to the brokenness of our world, and yet at the end of, the, at the end of his life, he is executed on a Roman cross. And on this cross, Jesus takes on the sin of those who would come to him, and he dies for it. Our rebellion against God's ultimate authority is deserving of death. Eternal separation from the source of life, God himself, because of our rejection of him. Ultimately, God will give us what we want. And if we spend our entire life rejecting him, then that will continue into eternity. But a rejection of God is a rejection of life itself. But Jesus dies that death for us. He is momentarily separated from the Father and endures hell in our place so that our slate could be wiped clean and we could be forgiven our sins. Jesus didn't stay dead, but after three days of being buried in a tomb, he rises from the grave and in his resurrection proves himself to be God in the flesh, conquer sin and death, and provide a path to new and eternal life for anyone who would come to him in faith. All of those who trust in Jesus for their salvation, who repent from their sin and believe that he is the son of God who came to take away the sin of the world, are made into new creations. And for 2,000 years, since Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, the church has been celebrating this transformation of individuals into new creations through the act of baptism, following the pattern that Jesus laid out for us. When a new believer is baptized, it symbolically marks their entrance into this new creation, into a new humanity. It identifies us with Jesus and represents our union with him through faith. The water itself has no power to save or wash, but the act of going under the water and coming back out visually depicts our union with Christ, how our sin has died with him and been left in the grave, and how we've been risen up with him to new life in his resurrection. This is why baptism is so significant for the believer. It is a public and visual, visual proclamation that we have died to our sins and been resurrected to new life. We're telling the church and the world that we are with Jesus. We belong to him, and we belong to the new humanity that he is creating. And our home is not this one, but the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus will bring with him when he returns. Today, we have three people who are going to be making that proclamation through baptism. Three people who have repented of their sins, who have believed in Jesus for salvation, and have been transformed into new creations. We get to celebrate with them the work of salvation that God has done in their life through Christ, and then commit as a church to holding them accountable to walk in the new identity that they've been given. If you believe in Jesus and have yet to be baptized, and then I would encourage you to consider baptism. And please come talk to me. We do baptism services about once a quarter, maybe sometimes more frequently. And so it would be a joy to get to baptize you if that's something that you've yet to do. 
If you have been baptized, then my encouragement to you would be to live your life as though you are a new creation. This is what Romans 6 talks about. It says in verses 1 through 4, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So if you are a Christian, you are a new creation. You have been given new life. So live it. Walk in the newness of life that you've been freely given. This message is what we call the gospel. It's the good news of what Christ has done to redeem and reconcile us back to the Father. And it is the only hope for our world. If humans are the problem, and we are, then humans need to change. And the only way we can truly change is by uniting ourselves to Christ and being recreated in his image. I'll conclude with a story. I want you to imagine that you've been invited to an extravagant party. There's going to be amazing food and drink, incredible guests, and all kinds of party favors. The only thing is that there is a dress code. It's a black tie event, and you can only get in to the party if you have on the proper attire. The problem is, you don't have a suit. And so you borrow one from your dad or your uncle, and it's way out of style, pretty worn, and it's definitely an ugly color. And so it's all you have, so you put it on, and you're like, we're just going to go for it. And so you head out to the party, and on the way, you trip over a tree root, and you fall into the dirt, and your suit gets dirty. And then you get yourself back up, and you keep walking along, and you step into a puddle. And so your pant legs are now wet, and your socks are soaked. You're like, okay, the only thing that's going to make this better is some Dutch Bros. And so you swing by Dutch Bros, and you get your coffee, and then you trip again, and you spill it, and now your suit is stained. You try to hop a fence, and it gets caught, and it tears. And by the time you make it to the party, you're an absolute mess. Your already ugly and not, fitting, not well-fitted suit is now stained, torn, dirty, and wrinkled. But you give it a shot, you knock on the door, and the host opens the door, and he is dressed immaculately. Bright white suit, fits well, it's tight where it should be tight and loose where it should be loose. He looks great, not even a wrinkle on this suit. And he takes one look at you, and his face is not one of disgust or disapproval, but one of compassion and pity. He can't let you in looking like that, but he also doesn't want to turn you away. So what he does is takes off his suit and trades with you. He leaves the party wearing your tattered rags, and you get to go into the party wearing his immaculate white suit. This is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. We're all walking around in dirty, ripped suits because of our sin, and we have no place. We do not belong in the new creation that God has established in Christ. But Jesus has traded places with us. He leaves the party so we can go in. He takes on our sin and gives us his righteousness. He experiences hell so that we can have heaven. He dies our death so that we can live his life. And he does all of that out of compassion and love for us. Baptism is a sign to the world that we have changed clothes, that our tattered suit has been left in the grave where Jesus, where Jesus went, and now we are dressed perfectly and immaculately in clean, bright white. So I'm going to close us in prayer. Uh, We'll take communion. I'll explain that here in a second. We'll worship together, and then I'll come back up and give some instructions for baptism. So pray with me. Father, thank you so much for making a way for us to be rescued from our sin. Every single one of us has failed to live up to the standard that you have set. We've failed to submit perfectly to your authority as God and creator. 
And the, the, the thing we deserve for that is death and separation from you. But Jesus has stepped in, died that death for us, and made a way for us to be made new. God, we celebrate and, and praise you for the transformation that we undergo when we come to Christ. And God, I pray that you would move in each and every one of our hearts to either remember that for maybe the hundredth time or even today open our eyes to the beauty of the gospel for the first time. God, we love you and we thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to die in our place. We pray these things in his name. Amen.